Hirsch, I think, captures it very, very well in defining what communitas is. If I could have any accent, I'd want an Aussie accent. That's just an awesome accent. But uh, I think he says it well, that really understanding what communitas is, a, uh, is important for us as a church. We've been talking about it now for several weeks. I know it's summer. You're here. You're gone. Your vacations, camps, things are happening all around us. So we're just kind of spending a lot of time this summer hitting in and out, hitting in in and out, especially through the month of June, really talking about communitas and trying to get some some clarity to that as we want to move forward in this whole concept of being not just a community, but a communitas. And what does that mean? Communitas does call us together. Okay, we're not lone people going at it alone out there. It does bring us together under a common banner. Uh, now, it does also, communitas does also send us out. So it calls us together, but it also sends us out and sends us out into the world and society to share the mission of Christ, the name of Christ, the, the glory of Christ, the, the freedom of Christ, the redemption of Christ. Wherever Christ can meet that need, that's what, that's what we're about as, as a church. And so Please understand as, as, as a part of Grace Point Church, to whatever degree you are first time with us today or you've been here since the beginning of the church, and that is this, is that we're not just about getting a, a nice building and filling it up with a bunch of people, okay? We are about pushing to the edge. We are about risk. We're not about risk aversion, all right? We're not going to be crazy, but we are going to push the envelope at times. We are going to go to places where Christianity is illegal. We're going to ask uh, people to step outside of their comfort zone. That's kind of what uh, we're about as a communitas. Now, let's kind of dive into this a little bit more as, as, as you look at it as a, as a culture. As a, as a culture, our, our, we're born into this world as individuals, we teach our children to tie their own shoes. We teach them to clean up their own messes and to make their own beds. So individualism is the base of humanity. It's where I live for me, all right? You got to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, all right? Nobody's going to look out for you. You got to look out for you. Individualism is the very basis of, of our existence, and we bring children into the world to raise them up to be individuals. You hopefully don't have the failure to launch thing or, or whatever going on in the home. So how are, how are we living? Again, but we don't just stay in individualism. Now, there's a lot of people that do. They never graduate beyond individualism. Now, I'll tell you this, just forewarn you, that if you're dating someone in a relationship with someone who's not moved or is in the process of moving beyond individualism, they're going to make a horrible, horrible life partner, all right? You've got to move beyond individualism into community. Community is where I become enlightened. I realize that, hey, I live with others. There is more than just me out there. It's more than just about me out there. This world doesn't revolve around me. Typically, I'm not just, I'm overgeneralizing here, but typically that happens 30s, 40s, maybe, hopefully. If it doesn't, and you start having children, things like that come into play here. You know, again, if you're stuck back in individualism, you're going to be a, you're going to be a mess to live with. Nobody's going to live with you. Uh, but community, hopefully you're going to get there. Now, however, most people stop there. And I want to say that there's something beyond community. I will say that most Christians don't live beyond just community. 
There is life beyond community. Churches don't live beyond community. They think, okay, we're happy, we're fed, we've got a good band, we've got good children's programs, we're okay. But there's another level that we want to move towards, and that is communitas. Communitas is where we become missional-minded, is where we live beyond ourselves because we are living for others. It's where I become second or third even in the equation, realizing that it's not about me. It's about something bigger than me, and it's about something that God has planned for me. It's about a bigger storyline. I may be a narrative, but he is a meta-narrative. He is a larger, greater story that is greater than my story. And figuring out how I fit into the big picture story is a very important process that sadly, again, most churches, most believers, most people don't get to that level. They stay stuck back in the other levels uh, of life. Now, in this past series of messages that we just finished up, and I want to go back and quote a quote, uh, read a quote that I, I read a A few weeks ago to you, I want to restate it again just to kind of drive it home a little bit more. It's from Rick Warren, and he said this, God is is at work in the world. Again, that's the larger meta-narrative. That's the larger storyline that's out there. God is at work in the world, and he wants you to join him. This assignment is called your mission. God wants you to have both a ministry to the body of Christ, that's the church, and a mission to the world. Your ministry is your service to believers, and your mission is your service to unbelievers. We, as followers of Christ, and I'm lumping all of us together, assuming a whole lot in this room today, but as followers of Christ, we have a mission that is greater than us, that will last longer than us, that will go further than us. How do we fit into that? How do we live in a world where our Christian, basic Christian values are becoming less and less a part of the culture, where marriage definitions are blurred, where morality is situational, where ethics are based on your own upbringing and what gets you ahead, and we have all this melting away. How do we live as followers of Christ? I want to take you back to 580 B.C. So we're going back a few years today. I want to go to the book of Jeremiah. I want you to find the book of Jeremiah if you have your Bibles. And I do encourage you, I don't say this much, but I do encourage you to have a Bible, carry it with you. If, you don't, if you're an electronic guy, I get it. You can scroll and we'll turn, okay? But uh, just something so you can follow on. So you're not seeing that Mike's just making this up. This actually, hopefully, is coming from Scripture, and it has a little bit, uh, 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 I guess, weightierness to it than just Mike's... Uh, musings up here being shared on the stage. But let me go back to a guy named Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet in the Old Testament. One of the largest books in the Old Testament is the book of Jeremiah. He was known as the weeping prophet. He was a prophet that was called on the scenes in one of, if not the, darkest days in Israel's history. The Hebrew nation, since their existence, since their inception, since their birth uh, from Father Abraham, all the way to Jeremiah. It had to be the darkest days because for 70 years, the nation of Israel is going to live displaced, deported, raped, pillaged, and in exile. Now, for the ro- most of the rest of this message, I'm just going to say exiled. But whenever I say exiled, you need to think that they were raped, they were pillaged, they were deported, they were made slaves, 
to a foreign land and a foreign God, to, to a foreign God, to a foreign king, and they were in a dark, dismal day. They were in a nation that was far removed from following Yahweh God. They were far removed from following the biblical God that you and I are studying and learning and hopefully trying to follow in our own lives. They were far removed from that. They were living in the land of Babylon, which is modern-day Iraq. They were told in that land, under Babylonian exile, to worship the king Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king and he was also God. And if you didn't worship him, now listen to this. Now, let me just tell you. Tell me this doesn't sound like the news you just heard this past week. If you didn't, and this is modern day Iraq, if you didn't fall in line with their religious beliefs, you were thrown into a fiery furnace or into a lion's den. You watch the news this past week and you'll find that people are being executed on the side of the street because they are not of the same tribe, because they do not worship their God the way that other people worship their God. It's still happening today. We have not evolved into a greater mankind. The reality is is that the nation of Israel was raped, pillaged, deported, taken to a land and told to worship King Nebuchadnezzar and if you don't, you will die. They were in a pagan land with a pagan God and a pagan king, and that's just the way it was going to be for the next generation of the people of Israel. So how does that relate to us today? Hopefully that will make sense as we go along. Look at Jeremiah 29, probably one of the most quoted chapters in all of Jeremiah. We'll get to that famous verse in a little bit, but don't go there yet. Jeremiah 29, verses 1 and 2, we find the context of this chapter. Now, you have a bunch of chapters here all linked together, and how do they all fit together, and what do they all mean? Jeremiah has written one other book in the, in the Bible called the Book of Lamentations, a book of weeping. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And in the middle of Jeremiah's prophecies, he decides to write a letter and somehow he folds into the writings of the, of the prophet Jeremiah. It's folded in and it's made a part of the context uh, of this entire book. Verse 29, chapter 29 says this, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles. And to the priests and the prophets and the people of Nebuch- whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Babylon, or from Jerusalem to Babylon. And this after King uh, Jeconiah and the queen mother and the eunuchs and the officials and the Judah and Jerusalem and the craftsmen. Now listen, to this. he's just listing off all these, these tradesmen, these experts, these skilled people, these educated people. He takes all these people and says, and and the officials of Jerusalem and craftsmen and the metal workers, and they departed from Jerusalem. See, what had happened is this. Babylon had come in, and they said, okay, you're smart, you're educated, you're intelligent, you're good-looking, you're this, you're that, you're the cream of the crop of all the Hebrew people. Here, you're going to Babylon. And everyone else, you're going to stay here. They divided families. Again, I can't tell you how awful, God awful it was, but what they did is they separated them and they took all the brain power, all of the intellectuals, all the priests, all of the, the, the rulers, and they put them under slave control in Babylon. And they left 
just a remnant of people in Jerusalem. Jeremiah was one of them. Jeremiah was left there to put the pieces back together again. That's why he's the weeping prophet. He was left in the pillage. He was left in the ruins. He was left in all of that to bring the nation hopefully back together again. But this letter, Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. This letter is not to the people of Jerusalem. This letter is to the people who are living under a pagan king in a pagan land, under a pagan god in the nation of Babylon, modern-day Iraq. And he says something to them in this letter. And it's in this letter that I want to challenge all of us today because we live in a day, in an age, where we might very well find ourselves living in a pagan land under pagan leaders, under presidents, under congressmen, under judges, under local officials, under school boards, under bosses that are far from Christ, far from God, are not walking with God, not serving God, not even interested in the things of God. How are we to live? How are we to live? If we can gain any direction from Jeremiah and how he encouraged the people who are living in Babylon, then maybe we can gain some inspiration and direction today in how we are to live in our land that is, I think we can safely say, far removed from following Christ. Because here's the reality. There are no Christian nations. America is not a Christian nation. It never was, to be honest with you, because nations aren't Christians. Individuals are Christians. They become followers of Christ or not followers of Christ. Are we going to follow Christ? Is our nation going to be full of followers of Christ or are we not? That's the bigger question. And I think we can see by, again, the questioning of our morals and our laws and our ethics. School is out, prayer is out of the school and commandments are out of the, off of the walls and marriage is now in question and there's a lot of lines that are muddled and confusing. And So how are we going to make sense of all of this as followers of God? And so then you come to Jeremiah 29, verse 4, and you find this. Thus says the Lord, the host of God of Israel, to all the exiles, now notice this, whom I sent into exile. God sent them into exile. Now, you've got to know the back history. They were, I don't have time to go into it, but they were basically living in disobedience and idolatry and all that kind of stuff. But God sends them into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Today in age which we live, how are we as Christians to live for Christ and not just become a muddled, watered-down, compromised faith? I think, Paul, uh, I think Jeremiah excuse me, gives, me, gives us at least two directives here, two directives of how we can live out our lives and live it out in, in, in a well, in, in a good communitas, if you will. The first thing is that we need to learn and see our role as being a part of the community. We are to be a part of the Northwest Arkansas community, not separated and segmented and in a bubble. Listen, I, I realize from the Christian circles that it's really easy to live in a Christian bubble. You, you get your Christian music from KLRC and you, you uh, or one of the other multiple Christian radio stations. You, 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 you read your novels from Tim LaHaye and how we're all going to be left behind or some are going to be left behind or not going to be left behind. And you try to figure all that stuff out. And then, and then we get our, our, our counsel from a, from, a, from a Dennis Rainey or from a James Dobson. And, and, and we go to our prayer groups and our small groups and we kind of live in a Christian bubble. How are we to function in a bubble? Are we to function in the world? 
how does Jeremiah encourage them to live? Look at verse 5 of this passage. Verse 5 and 6, he says, I sent you into exile. In verse 4 and verse 5, he says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters and take wives, uh, uh, take wives for your sons and, and give daughters to your, uh, in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters and multiply there and do not decrease. My challenge to every believer in this room today is live in your community. Plant gardens in your community, be a part of the POA in your community, be, be, be a part of the neighborhood in your community, be a part of the baseball team coaching in your community, be a part of the civic club in your community, be a part of your community. Join the community, be a part of the community, and be Christ in that community. Be the only witness that community may know for Christ, and don't just live in some Christian bubble. He calls them to live in, be a part of, don't boycott, boycott, build houses, it says in the message, make yourselves at home, put in gardens and eat what grows in that country, become a part of that culture. Now, I'm not saying give up your values, give up your morals, change your ethics, not at all. In fact, you may be the only standard bearer in that country, in that land, in your corporate world, on your corporate team, you may be the only believer there is there. But be there. Live there. Influence there. Make an impact there. Wherever you are, be all there. Wherever God has planted you, let him bloom you. When you think about people in the Christian bubble over here. That's not what we're advocating. It's not biblical. We're talking about the Christian community being in the pagan world with the pagans and the pagan. And I say pagan. I'm not trying to be degrading. That's just people who don't worship God, the God that we worship. Okay? We need to be a part of that. Think about it like this. Think about Joseph. His brothers did everything they could to get rid of him. And where does he find himself? He finds himself living as an advisor to the Pharaoh, a pagan ruler in a pagan land that worshiped dead mummies in tombs, in temples, in, in pyramids. And they were far from worshiping God. And where was Joseph? He was an advisor to Pharaoh. Think about Nehemiah. Worked as a cupbearer to Cyrus the king. Cyrus was not a believer, but yet he was able to have a voice in the life of Cyrus that he was able to speak truth and to able to get and to appeal to uh, the king, and he was able to get the people of Israel freed from that bondage and able to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls to establish a nation again. Think about Daniel. Read the book of Daniel. Daniel knew more Aramaic than he did Hebrew. He grew up so much in the land of Babylon. He knew more of the tongue of that land than he did of his mother tongue because there's more Hebrew written in the book of Daniel than any other book of the, uh, of the Bible. There were more Aramaic, excuse me, than any other book of the Bible. What am I saying? I'm saying this. Daniel was very much a part of his culture. He was very much an influencer in his culture. So here's the challenge to every one of us. Be a part of your community. If God 
If God has allowed you to be a part of the POA, if God has allowed you to be a part uh, of whatever, be a part of it. The second thing that we're called to do is be a blessing to the community. In any way that God allows you, be a blessing to the community. The greatest way that we can bless a community is to be the church and to plant a church. To be a church because we're the only organization. You name another organization out there that does this. We're the only organization, only living, breathing organism in a more biblical way that will bless a community, body, soul, and spirit. There's not another organization out there. But we as a church, if we live in a bubble and we live just as a happy, go lucky, huddles and cuddles community and not a communitas, then we will miss our opportunity to be a blessing in this community. Donald Miller said it like this, the reason the government is so big is because churches are so small. And we're not talking about big-sized churches. We're talking about big visions, big missions, big parts and inputs into the community. I love it whenever in, in the book of Acts, chapter 8, when the church finally launched out of Jerusalem into Samaria, they finally started really showing themselves to be the church. And what does it say about the city? It says, there was much joy in that city. This is what I would hope, and I may be really out on a limb here when I say this, but please just give me some credit. But I would hope and pray to God that if Grace Point stopped existing, that the taxes would have to go up in northwest Arkansas. Just because we stopped caring, because there wasn't, we weren't putting families back together, because we weren't helping lives find meaning and purpose, and they were, they were caught up in, 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 in social injustices, and we were helping rescue people from that. I would hope to God that the impact on this community would be felt, not because we're not here anymore, but because we're not there anymore. Are we willing to be a part of the community and be a blessing in this community? Verse 7, I didn't read it earlier. Let me read it to you now. Because he talks about plant your gardens, marry your wives, marry your sons and daughters off, build your houses, verse 7, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on, on, on its behalf for its welfare, you will find your welfare. Whenever you, people of Israel, people of God, when you are in Babylon, when you're in this pagan country with a pagan land and a pagan God, and you are planning yourself there, being there, loving people there, caring for, seeking the welfare of your community, you're going to make a difference. People are going to notice it. Lives will be changed. You will be blessed because of it. Pray for it. Live it out. Seek it out. The whole idea of seeking out the welfare, it gives the idea of looking. You're going to have to look. Now, where, where how, do we, how do we seek the welfare of our own community? How do we do this? Well, I think we have to look. We have to look within, first of all. So, excuse me, we have to look without, first of all. Let me start there. Look without. That means look into our communities. When you're driving down the streets, when you're in the schools, when you're coaching the little league, whenever you're with the children in the neighborhood, whenever you're with the families, listen to their stories, listen to their hurts, listen to their pains, listen to their addictions, 
Listen to their struggles. And then be there. Be there with them. Be there for them. Walk with them. And listen, I know we live in northwest Arkansas, and we're affluent, and we're blessed, and we've got jobs, and we've got homes, and we've got economy that's strong. But listen, all of that is, is that's a mask, a front, a facade to an emptiness in a lot of people's hearts. And what we need to do is we need to be looking past their designer clothes, past their fancy cars, past their new homes, and we need to be looking into their souls. So open our eyes, God, that we would see the people around us. Look out. It's more than somebody standing on the side of the street holding up a sign and just saying, I need help. It's being in their life, a part of their life. So we're not just treating symptoms, but we're coming up with solutions. Listen, it's a part of the Christian faith. First John chapter 3, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart. Notice it wasn't closing his hands. It's closing his heart. See, it needs to penetrate your heart. It needs to go deep inside of you. It needs to, you need to emotionally feel the pain. When you start seeing people's pains and hurts and, and loneliness and cries and you start weeping with them, now we're talking about communitas. Now we're talking about being a blessing. Now we're talking about looking out for our own community and for the good of our community. But it's not only looking without, it's also looking within. It's looking within. For some of you, you're like the people of Israel. For some reason, you were born and raised in an exile of sorts. You're displaced. You've gone through brokenness. Dreams have been shattered. Ideas have been lost. You've gone through neglect, you've gone through abuse, and it happened a long time ago, I know, and, and you're just putting the past behind you. But what if you, what if you tapped into that for a moment? What if you looked in deep enough and you said, why, God, would you want me to go through this? Why did I go through this pain, the shame, the guilt? Why did I go through the loss? And what if we started looking deep enough within that we wouldn't allow that emptiness to just be there, that brokenness to just be there. Never waste a pain. Why has that pain been in your life? And we look within and we start finding, oh, there's an emptiness there. I don't even have Christ there. Listen, none of this means anything without Christ. You can't be a blessing if you don't have a blessing. So my encouragement is to start number one with giving your life and faith to Christ. Follow him, give yourself fully to him, but then help other people. Help other people. I, there are people in our church who give time at the Boys and Girls Club because they want to mentor boys and girls because they didn't have a father. We have people in our church that, that give their life at loving choices because they in their life or in their family's life have experienced crisis pregnancy moments and they want to walk with people through it. What if you took the pains of the past? What if you took the wounds of the past and could figure out how to, to make it wisdom for the future and to help somebody else who's going through a similar thing as you have? God is working in you. God's working around you. He is trying to write his bigger story in you. What is your story?
My story is a story of brokenness. I came from a broken home. And the definition that we think of as a broken home today is divorce. Well, I had that too. But I also had brokenness in a much more extreme way. Severe poverty. We lived in the poorest of conditions. We went days without food. I had a mother who was severely mentally ill, so we had brokenness through mental illness. So my mother had what's called a schizotypical personality disorder. And my father was not present. He only came home long enough to add to the family. But my mother was severely broken. And she took out her frustrations on me and my sister. There were five of us, but she, for some reason, picked on two of us. She um, would sometimes have us strip down to nothing and go get on the bed. And she would hit and hit until she was too exhausted to bring down another blow. And most of the time, she would hit, and sometimes I would lose consciousness, and then I would regain consciousness, and then she would continue as if she had had a rest and she could, she could go on. But she would stop suddenly as if she was defeated, and she would step away from the bed and drop whatever she had in her hand and take a very deep sigh. And she would go into the other room, and she would get on her bed, and I would wait quietly and listen for that deep breathing because I knew she was asleep. And I would go out to the backyard while sobs still shook my little body and tears still dried on my cheeks, and I would talk to God. Because at some point, the community around us, somebody invited us to church, so I knew who Jesus was. And I loved him, and I knew I was his girl. I continued um, to grow up in that situation, um, having been sexually abused, dealing with violent abuse from my mother, and eventually began to get into trouble. And I had a social worker who was quite feisty um, who intervened and eventually took me from my mother. So I was sent to a children's home. Um, I do believe God plucked me out of that situation and placed me where I was. And I thrived. I did very well. I went from being malnourished, physically abused, sexually abused, to what I felt was a safe environment. And I knew, where, I knew when we were going to eat. I knew I was going to be okay. And I started to do really well in school. But not long after I got there, I began to get sexually abused by a member of the children's home. And, and I did so for about seven years until I graduated from high school. And although that was happening, I still had wonderful people who invested in my life. And God continued to bless and protect my heart. So I went to college because I needed a place to live. Um, I aged out. I graduated from high school. I aged out. I didn't have any support. I had no family to go home to. They were all still a mess. Um, and they did not invite me back home. And I didn't want to go home. So I moved to college. Well, I did pretty well in school, but then about September, I found out that the dorms were going to close at Christmas, and like, at that point, you had to like take your stuff and leave, and I didn't have any place to go. I didn't know anybody. I mean, I'd made some friends at school, but I didn't really have a place to go. I didn't have anybody to call and say, hey, can I come home for Christmas? So um, I began to date a person, a guy. Uh, his name is Kent, 
and I ended up pregnant and married by Christmas in that order. I did really good. He's really cute, and he's really smart, and we're still married almost 26 years later. God has blessed our relationship and blessed our marriage, and in the process of my brokenness and my restoration, God allowed us to become foster parents, and we fostered many, many girls, which we're still in contact with. At some point, though, God called us away from doing that, and that was very difficult for me because I really thought that I would do that for my whole life, but I felt like that was my way to give back. So God brought us to Northwest Arkansas, and I honestly didn't want to come here. I didn't know anybody, and I just wasn't looking real forward to it. Um, So we moved over here, though, and God blessed. I went to work at Hobby Lobby. My husband went to work for John Brown University. And at some point, my husband and I sat down in January of 2009, and he said he's very, very much a realist. He's a little bit of a pessimist. Um, And he's a perfectionist, so you can imagine how that's been. (laughs) But he said, you know, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do? I'll support you in whatever you want to do. If you want to go back to school, we'll we'll get you enrolled in school. And I said, I don't want to go to school. I want to help girls that are aging out of foster care or homeless in northwest Arkansas. And he said, that's going to take forever. And I said, can't we just pray and ask God for a sign that he would send me a sign and tell me this is really what I want you to do with your life? So we went our separate ways. I went to work and cut fabric at the Hobby Lobby counter. And in comes this woman bright and early that morning. And we began to share. And I was cutting her fabric and I was talking and um, telling her about what I wanted to do with this ministry called Saving Grace and to serve these girls. And she said, you have to do this. She wrote down all these names and numbers. And I got so excited. And I felt so encouraged. And I felt like that was God's sign to me that this is really what I was supposed to do. So I went on about three hours later to the break room and was eating my lunch. And in she comes through the door. And I thought, oh, man, I'm very, very easily distracted. So don't, don't make any sudden moves in the audience because it will distract me. She comes in. I thought for sure I'd messed up her fabric. She said, no, you didn't do anything wrong. She said, sit down for a minute. She said, with tears in her eyes, I was at another store shopping and God moved in my heart very strong that I needed to bring you this. And she handed me a four-foot-long sign that said Amazing Grace. Well, from January to September, things moved very quickly for us at Saving Grace. God took a broken little girl with no hope of a future and gave me a hope and a future. And he did it through people who invested in my life from the community. Saving Grace opened in about, we were ready to open about nine months after that happened, as long as it takes to give birth, really. Um, And he continues to bless. In fact, uh, Grace Point Church did one of our very first fundraisers. He did a golf tournament in 2009 for us. I want to leave you with a verse um, that, that really sums up my story. Psalm 30, 10 through 12. You did it. You changed my wild lament into whirling dancing. You ripped off my black morning band and you decked me with wildflowers. I'm about to burst with song. I can't keep quiet about you, God, my God. I can't thank you enough. What the enemy meant for evil, God redeemed for me in his story about me and for his good. This is my story, his story about me. You know, that's a story that's very real to Becky and Kent. What's your story? 
Maybe it won't start a nonprofit. Maybe that's not what God's calling you to do. Maybe, maybe your story is a different kind of hurt, a different kind of pain, a different kind of experience, but that you can walk with somebody through it. And what a difference that that would make if we would start seeing our lives as a part of God's story. And then how, could, how is it, God, that I am in this situation and how can I take this and be a blessing to my community? When we become a blessing to our community, we remove the doubts, the fears, the questions behind why should I ever follow Jesus? Because we are being the example to them. God may send us into exile. He may, it may be a time of deep, dark. It may be a dark season. But what can I take from that? The most popular verse that I, I'm going to just stand on that and say, I don't know that for a fact, but I'm going to just say the most popular verse in all of Jeremiah is found in this chapter. Chapter 29, just a few verses later, verse 11. This is what it says. Read it with me. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. He said that to them while they were in exile, while they were deported, while they were in darkness, while they were in despair. He said, I've got a plan for you. I don't see your plan, God. I don't feel your plan. I definitely don't feel hope, God. What are you going to do in that situation? And how can we, in our culture that's moving further and further away from God, how can we be the ones who bring hope and bring a future? We do that because we plant ourselves here. We put ourselves in the community. And then we look for ways that we can bring hope to it. But we can't give hope to this community if we don't have hope residing within us. Christ in you is your hope of glory, Colossians says. Would you pray with me? If Christ isn't in you, then right where you sit right here and now, if you can't say, he's mine, I'm his, I'm walking with him, then right now just lift up a prayer to him and say, Lord, I, I don't know what to pray, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do, but I just want you, Jesus, to be my life to give me life, to give me future, to give me hope. Put your own ending on that prayer. If you're here and you're like, Mike, I'm ready. I'm scared, but I'm ready to go into my community and make a difference. Pray for me. I want to pray for you now. Father, as you send us into this world, to be in this world, not of this world, to be a part of this world, but not made by this world, to not be conformed to this world, but Lord, to be transformed by you. Lord, I pray that we will leave a very clear, distinct footprint to you. That you'll use our hands, our feet, our eyes, our ears, our mouths, our, our, our hearts, our emotions, Lord, to be a blessing to those in our life. So that when people look at us, they see you and they want more of you. So people look at Grace Point and the communitas that, that makes up who we are, that, Lord, we're not just a happy-go-lucky church that meets in a cool new building, that, Lord, we are a communitas that meets in the streets, 
meets on the soccer fields, meets in the conference rooms, meets on the business trips. As we go, Lord, we are about you. Because you are in us and you've called us to go. So we must live sent. We must go. We bless you and we thank you for that calling. In the beautiful name of Jesus.